Let us pray. God, we come with broken hearts and we worship you. We thank you for this beautiful morning, for giving us breath and the strength to come and hear what you have to say. We pray that as a body of Christ, we would arise and use what you have equipped us to fight for the gospel. We pray you would be with our leaders, give them wisdom, and give them tender hearts. God, would you just open up our ears and our hearts to what you have to say, and let it penetrate our hearts today. We love you, God, and I pray that we just continue to worship you this morning. In all these things we pray, amen. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. Today is quite a special day. Last week, uh, we ordained our newest elder, Neil Manning, into service. And today, we dedicate four new deacons to service. I'm going to ask these guys if they would come up. Jim Clayton, Brian Lee, Jeremy Pittman, and Dexter Wells, if you would. Along with all the elders, both active and inactive, if you would come up, we are going to Uh, lay hands on these guys and pray, and then uh, I will lead us in our prayer focus uh, this morning. So if our uh, new deacons would kneel here in front of us today, and we will lay hands on you, and Neil Manning is going to lead us in prayers. We dedicate these guys to service, and I'll talk more about what that is in a few moments. ...that you have shown through their lives I pray now that you would continue uh, to protect them, guard their minds and hearts, their families. Put a hedge of protection about them, Lord. We thank you for their leadership, and we ask that you have, you will uh, bless everything that their hands touch. Uh, let every project, every plan succeed because it is done to your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, guard their lives, their, their wives, their children. And I pray that this church, that this community would flourish and be blessed because of how you have worked in and through them, through all the deacons, through all servants and leaders within this body. I pray that uh, your name would be magnified and that uh, everyone within the area would see that you are doing a work and that you are blessing those who who faithfully serve you. We thank you for putting them uh, in this position and putting within their hearts to answer the call to serve where you choose and where you have called them. Lord, we offer this time to you, these men to you, to service uh, wherever you would call them. Lord, help the body to support wherever you draw us, and and it is to your glory, and in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, a great day. Again, I will speak about the deacons in just a moment. Um, My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. I will not be teaching today. David Calvert will be our worship pastor. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple of things before we focus on the deacons as our prayer uh, uh, focus today. If uh, you are part of Grace Community Church, even if you've been here for 20 years and we've got every piece of information we could possibly have about you, please fill out the family update. We want to make sure that all of our records are exactly as they should be. If you are here uh, today coming back for homecoming at Campbell, we welcome you. So good to see uh, some old friends here. If you're parents of students, if you are uh, here to to, to celebrate with your loved one about coming in as a deacon, then we welcome you as well. If this is relatively new experience for you here at Grace Community Church, it's already been mentioned before, and if you're fairly new, you were probably here when the announcements were made because, you know, visitors come early. But just in case you weren't, Stay with us for a Grace Connection. If you've been coming for a while, but you don't know the uh, elders very well, all the elders and their families, or most will be, uh, here so you can get to know them and get to ask some questions about the church and uh, maybe have a little better idea if this is the place where you think the Lord wants you to be. Well, today we are uh, focusing on our deacons. I cannot 
begin to tell you how much they do that you have no idea they do. It says something that we are bringing four new deacons into uh, the fold today to help serve our body, which they do so very well. It's a heavy load that these guys carry with all the facilities in the building and also benevolence. They direct our benevolence funds, and there's a lot that goes into that because you give generously on the last Sunday of every month, uh, which today is that, at the end of this service, we'll be taking a special benevolence offering. There are a lot of people in need, both in and outside the body. So we distribute a fair amount of money every year uh, to benevolence. And these guys are the ones who administrate that. And that's fairly, you can imagine, it's tricky at times. So there's a lot that they do. Increasingly more ministry, serving uh, people who are sick and in need. So... Pray for the deacons. It's not a place to get ready to become an elder. It's a very specific calling. Elder is no different from any calling in the church. There is a leadership component there, absolutely. But all of us are called to serve in the ways that God has equipped us to serve. And the deacons have a very special role. Uh, They meet once or twice a month, and so we've asked that you pray for unity with them, uh, pray for the physical strength for them as they uh, carry out their service. They have families just like everybody else, and when something needs to be done, they do it. A lot of times they'll take off work to make sure that things are done. We appreciate all that the deacons do for us. They get communion ready uh, again. The list is quite long. So let's lift them up in prayer. And at the end of this prayer, we will have our regular offering, which we do every Sunday. And then if you're here for the first time, it's not that we take two offerings every Sunday. We just take this benevolence offering once a month. Although if the notion hits us, we may take two or three, you know. So, no, just kidding. Father, uh, we love you. We acknowledge Our position apart from you, which is helpless and hopeless. But in Jesus Christ, we are joint heirs with him. We have been given uh, the privilege to come right into your very presence. And we do so, Lord, without need of a mediator. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between man and God. And we praise your name, Father. For caring about us and loving us so much. We acknowledge you as the holy, perfect creator. And Jesus as the head of our church. And Lord, every church has need of those who serve freely and willfully. And and truly, even more than others. And we have people who serve our body amazingly well. Who are not given the title deacon, elder, or... uh, another specific title that we are so grateful for, everything that is done for us. But for these deacons, and particularly these new deacons who come in, uh, we pray that you would give them eager hearts and uh, strong will and commitment to serve in this body known as Grace Community Church. We pray for the current deacons and and the new deacons that they would serve together in unity that they would take encouragement and strength from one another and the elders as we do our best to meet together as often as we can. We just pray that uh, our body would lift them up repeatedly as they serve you. Now, uh, Lord, it comes time to give back to you just a piece of what you've given to us. Give us joyful hearts. Recognize that giving joyfully only comes from you. So we thank you for giving many many in our body generous hearts and we pray that you would do that across our entire congregation and that we give willingly, not in any way begrudgingly, understanding that this is kingdom service and use uh, money that is being used for your glory and your will. We pray that many will come to Christ. Bless the remainder of our service and the word as it is preached. May we hear it, receive it. Believe it. Obey it. Be with David as he preaches. Give him power. In Jesus' name, amen.
So a couple of weeks ago, Brad, our teaching pastor, mentioned the movie Ruiner. Does anybody remember that reference? That person that's in your family or group of friends who sucks the suspense right out of a good show or film because they pick up on some foreshadowing um, or, or they have a hunch or even worse, they've read the book on which the film seems to be based. And nowadays, everything's based on the book. And so they make this comment right as things get started. Oh, this is going to happen. It's going to be tragic. Or, uh, oh, that's his sister, I bet. That's gross. Uh, everyone else, everyone else watching the film would just rather that person be quiet, right? Even if they're smart enough to figure out what's happening. Because uh, some of the joy is in the journey. So... I'd like to submit that there's also, in your family or your group of friends, the movie Quoter. Everybody has one in their family. If you can't think of who it is, maybe it's you. Um, Because around my house, you're prone to hear lines like, Judah, I am your father. Come with me if you want to live. Only if you're going to get out. That word you keep using, I do not think it means what you think it means. I've got a bad feeling about this, where everything is awesome. Uh, And of course, those lines are somewhat humorous just by themselves, Uh, but even more corny if you know the reference from my dad joke. If you actually have seen the film, like Empire Strikes Back in this case, uh, then when I say, I am your father, then you should remember the scream of disbelief from Luke the tension of that scene, the fact that he just got his hand cut off by his dad, and there's a lot going on behind that quote. And then, of course, you know, there's the resolution from the next film, from Return of the Jedi, where Luke tries to save his dad, and his dad actually saves him, and there's lots of feels there. And all of that is the backdrop for me using that movie quote when I'm hanging out with my oldest son. So if I use the line, everything is awesome with Judah, then Judah and I both are going to instantly think about the crazy creativity of the Lego movie and the ways that the son and the father bond at the end. Okay, maybe I'm thinking about that. But the fact that that line is also a really annoying song, all of that is kind of behind that phrase when I use that simple quote. So think about also like the fact that uh, you know, Brad and Sean, when he has preached here, they, they quote from Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia in their sermons. Now those quotes are beautiful in and of themselves, but there's so much more meaning when they bear the weight of their original context and the associated feelings and truths that Tolkien and Lewis intended. So you won't really know the fullness of what's being said unless you know the reference. So also please read those books before seeing those films, um, just as a side note. Uh, This morning, we're going to take the blue pill, find out what's really going on in our text in Hebrews. Anybody catch that one? Uh, Philosophers of language actually tell us that we speak quite a bit in metaphor. So much of our communication is referential. So even simple conversations that don't even have movie quotes for referential phrases, there's there's reference and ideas woven in just simple communication. So if I just ask, hey, have you been to the fair? I mean, it's a phrase that's loaded with sights and smells and heart attack-inducing food, unless you've never been. Then my question has no weight, has no meaning. But once you've been, and then I ask with a slight smile on my face, you will smile back, and I'll know that you too spent way too much money the last two weeks. That's actually kind of what's happening here in our text And it's what you and I experience all the time is the fact that you don't really know what's being communicated if you don't know the reference. So the author of Hebrews loves the Bible. And he's dropping quotes the whole time. And these quotes are beautiful in and of themselves, but much, much more meaningful when we know the weight of their original context and those associated truths. So this morning, I'm preaching from Hebrews 2.12. I've actually been looking forward to this for a long time uh, because uh, it gives me a chance to clarify something very important. <laughs> Although we use the term worship leader to refer mostly, we're, we're talking about a song leader in our contemporary settings. Um, biblical theology makes it very clear that Jesus is the worship leader. That should elicit an amen. <laughs> Thanks be to God that that's the case 
And we'll unpack more of why that's significant as we move forward. I'm going to steal a lot of things from Ron Mann's book, Proclamation and Praise. So Ron, Dr. Mann, uh, is an ethnodoxologist, which is basically, he's a missional music leader. He focuses on how people groups around the world use music to praise God. And he wrote a very short book that has some very powerful truths that shaped how I understand my role as a worship leader under the leadership of Brad and the elders and under the perfect leadership of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to read the text. We're going to explore the reference, return to the context of Hebrews, and then celebrate Jesus. Sound good? So now, it would be a little strange for me to ask you to stand if I only read Hebrews 2.12, because I'd probably finish before you all stood up. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and then leave a thumb there, or whatever finger is most comfortable, in Hebrews 2.12. Because the author is quoting from a very significant place. And he definitely intends for us to remember the fullness of that context when he quotes these two specific lines. So I'm going to read the original context for this verse, which is Psalm 22. So you can turn there with the rest of your hand. And then on the screen, the quote will be highlighted when we get to that verse in Psalm 22. Because I'm reading the whole chapter, uh, you can remain seated. And you can follow along in your text or on the screen. So this is Psalm 22 from the ESV translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. 
It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So what is the context of this psalm? And that is a question you should ask anytime you want to study the Bible. What is the context for this verse? Why was it written and to whom was it written? So this is a psalm of David, which of course is no coincidence. This psalm can be categorized as an individual lament. Now there are many kinds of psalms, uh, for thanksgiving, to praise, to lament, uh, to even calling down the wrath of God on your enemies. Uh, But this psalm in particular moves from lament to thanksgiving. It's also interesting to note uh, the superscription. So that's that little bit of tiny words that's in your Bible right above where the psalm starts properly. So look at that. What this indicates is that this psalm probably had a melody to it. Like this is instructions to, hey, sing this according to this. So can you imagine singing these words? The first half of this psalm is hard to even read, but not hard to understand. We, we don't talk about our suffering much, but in all honesty, we each suffer more than we would admit. In fact, the collected psalms, the Psalter, contain quite a bit of lament and and suffering in song form. And yet, it's really rare that we encounter a lament in our song canon. So that's what prompted me and and Matt Papa to write the song that we sang earlier, based on Psalm 22. Uh, We wanted to try to get at some of the dark themes in this psalm while viewing it through the lens of the death of Jesus. So thankfully, several other songwriters are trying to intentionally put lament into our worship music, um, which is really healthy, and it's an important development, I think. But it's still really hard to get our heads around singing something as graphic and as vivid as this psalm. But from studying it, it seems that that was the case. People sang this. And the shape of this psalm is that verses 1 through 21, as you look at this, are, are lament. And verses 22 and onward are celebration of God's work, thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And this is actually a frequent shape for the Psalms, beginning with lament or sadness or confusion, yet ending with thanksgiving and praise for the underlying faithfulness of God because he keeps his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. So the reference that uh, the author of Hebrews wants us uh, to to catch is he uses verse 22. And verse 22 is the climax of the psalm. It's like the pinnacle before it comes back down all in thanksgiving. So if you quote the climax of a movie (laughs) or a pivotal line of dialogue from some scene in a show, like, of course, you assume that the people you're talking to have seen the rest of the film. Otherwise, the quote is kind of worthless. The author here wants us to recall the fullness of this psalm and the fullness of this particular verse too. So the first half of the psalm is lament. Did did you recognize some of the language as we read through it? Some of the descriptions? This psalm has historically been recognized as a powerful picture of Jesus' crucifixion. So from the very beginning, hopefully you caught that line at least, Jesus himself quotes this from the cross. In the psalm, in verses 1 through 11, though, the psalmist is kind of stating the fact that their whole life has been lived in dependence on God. And that's most true of Jesus, the perfectly submissive son of God. So he can say, my God, in a way that none of us ever could. But that's not all. In fact, this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion in shockingly accurate ways. I mean, It's not shocking for those of us who are desensitized to the power of Scripture. But it's shocking to somebody who is encountering this for the first time. They hear the gospel, read this psalm. If you read this text alongside the gospels, may all of us endeavor to hear the gospel as if it's for the first time. So in verses 8, 15, 16, so look at this in your Bible. Mark this if you haven't marked it before we find language that is precisely fulfilled as Jesus is killed in our place. 
I mean, it's not surprising at all in light of this that Psalm 22 is quoted so many times in other places in the New Testament. I mean, we don't often consider like the prophetic weight of a song, but the songs written by God, the Psalms, are so powerful that they are meaningful in their original context. They are meaningful throughout the history of the people of God, and they are meaningful to us when we use this language ourselves. But beyond this picture of Jesus in Psalm 22, the Psalms of Lament are prophetic in the sense that God knew exactly how you would suffer, how you would feel. And he gave us words to use when we knew we don't have any. My cousin Nadine, uh, who's in Germany, was in town a few weeks ago, and she mentioned that when her grandmother was dying, She had no words except for the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms. She could read those words. She could recite them. When all other words failed her, thank God for the scriptures. Spurgeon actually suggests something really interesting. He suggests that Jesus may have recited this whole psalm while he was dying. Because remember, it begins with, my God, my God. And some scholars indicate that this psalm ends with the phrase, it is finished. So when there are no words to express his suffering, Jesus himself uses scripture. And Spurgeon then says, and it's typically, you know, robust. I don't know if you've seen a picture of Spurgeon's beard, that everything he does is robust. And so in his robust way, he says, if there is any holy ground in scripture, then this is it. And we should remove our sandals here. Because Jesus sang the first verses of Psalm 22, we don't have to. Instead, we sing the verses of praise with him. In worship, we sing with our Savior because he first sang for us. Because Jesus sang the first verses of Psalm 22, we don't have to. The second half of the psalm exemplifies the fruit of trusting the Lord. So even in, even in darkness... Because it, it, the way it moves, it was probably still in a place of darkness, even when he began to thank the Lord for deliverance. And we have to remember that it's always darkest before the, what, dawn. That's what Andrew Peterson writes on the first track of his new record. And then the Bible also uses these pictures of you know, pain before the child is born, right? But the dawn is always going to come. And the promises of God will always be born. So reading this psalm through the lens of Jesus is a vivid reminder of what Jesus shows us in Luke 24. Uh, On the road to Emmaus, when he meets those two on the journey, uh, he says that all of the prophets and the writings speak of him. Or as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, that Jesus is the missing piece of the puzzle. It makes all the pieces come together. And it actually becomes the beautiful picture it was intended to be. So now let's return to our context of Hebrews 2. So we've explored the reference, even though we could preach a bunch of sermons out of Psalm 22. Hopefully you picked up on that. But, and now we're going to look at how the author of Hebrews intends for us to understand this reference in context. So flip, flip back to Hebrews 2 if you're not already there. Brad set some of the context last week, uh, unpacking the connections in chapter 2 to the suffering that we experience. It's already, you see, that there's a lot connecting Psalm 22 to this section. It makes the quote dropping even more significant. The connections here are intentional. And there are four key phrases I want to unpack from this quoted verse. Uh, Tell of your name, my brothers, the congregation, and sing your praise. With the context of this verse and the whole chunk of verses surrounding it, it necessitates that we actually unpack the idea of brothers First, Uh, so Hebrews 2 is establishing Jesus' solidarity with us as his brothers and sisters, which the other quotes that we'll get to next week, they're going to build on that. They're going to unpack that as Brad preaches from the whole section next week. But I want to break down our assumption about what brothers means here and and bring us back to the first century context as Brad has been doing so well over the last couple weeks. So to understand the term brothers... 
First, we must expose how we typically understand it. So this could get really big and abstract because I love philosophy and history, and this is kind of where it intersects. So here in America, we're radically individual. I mean, this is a whole other conversation potentially, but the, the, the contrasts here between the American dream and the gospel, uh, David Platt draws those out so well and radical, and others have done it since. Uh, but they've, unfortunately, the American dream and the gospel have been fused together into the American gospel, which is really pretty dangerous. Because the American dream, if you'll recall, depends on you being good enough. If you pull yourself up and you work hard, you can achieve anything here in the land of opportunity. The other side of the coin is, if you're not good enough, or if you don't try hard enough, then your situation is your fault. Actually, the gospel agrees that your situation is your fault, but not necessarily from something you did or didn't do. But by virtue of being a human, sin has broken every single one of us. We just make it worse. So here's the key contrast, though. The American dream says to be acceptable and happy, you just need to try harder, be better, and do more. The gospel says to know peace and joy and hope. Jesus has done it. So trust him and follow him. So the American dream has fed into our radical individualism or rugged individualism, if you're a hunter type, uh, but it's pervasive in how we understand ourselves. So nearly every other culture in the world, though, including the cultures of the Bible, were communal or collective in the ways that they coped with the world. But the Enlightenment and the American myth have made it such that we assume that we have everything we need in ourselves. The gospel tells us we have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. That's a huge difference. So as we read the Bible, we must remember the original context, a culture that was communal and collective in the ways they saw themselves and the ways they functioned. So the reason for laying these ideas out is in order to read the New Testament, we can't simply read the words of family with our own connotations and American experience. We must read to understand the intent of the author and the ways that the first hearers would receive this. This will make it much more meaningful to us as we then bring it to our context. So when Jesus refers to brothers in this passage, it carries significantly more weight than when we use the term brothers. This is in part because of our disintegrating family structure. Yet another potential tangent. But when the scripture uses brother and sister, it's in the original context of a culture that was a group comes first mentality, strong group culture. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Anybody? All right. Uh, This is very counterintuitive for us, though, because of our radical individualism. We structure our life based on our individual choices, what I choose to do, where I choose to live, and who I choose to marry. Uh, But the gospel structures our life based on to whom we belong and into whose family we've been brought. So here's how this worked. In the original context, for Hebrews. Families were patrilineal, meaning like we see this in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, uh, as well as all throughout the Old Testament. The ways the Hebrew people reckoned uh, relationships and groups was through lineage and specifically through bloodline. And there was a focus on the men in the line, since that how, that's how the name and heritage was passed down. So patrilineal means. But even when you were married, In biblical culture, your strongest relationships were ties to your family of origin with those whom you shared blood. Your brothers and your sisters who shared your blood were those to whom you were most loyal in the biblical time period. Within that relational framework, the bond between siblings is the most significant biblical picture of relationship. And the family is the most important metaphor for the church in the New Testament. It's partly why we did a whole series unpacking that metaphor. So when we read the text, as original readers of Hebrews might have read it or heard it, it's obvious. Uh, but when we read this as 21st century Americans, it takes a little bit more work. Because we've got to know the full story, as it were. We have to know the reference, even in a little word like brothers. So, for instance, in Mark 10, 29, 
as one example among many. When Jesus speaks of family, he speaks of brothers and sisters first in the list, then mother and father. And this is intentional. This is how people of that, of that time understood the strong group relationships. It reflects how they lived. And then think about the fact that the betrayal of a brother was deeper than any other betrayal in the Bible. The first overt sin after the fall is fratricide, a brother murdering a brother. Then throughout the Old Testament, uh, there is significant dramatic tension between siblings that would have captivated the original audience because that's not how things are supposed to be. (laughs) They understood that aspect of the structure. You were supposed to have an undying loyalty to your brothers. They're your blood relations. So that's why when there's resolution to Jacob's tension with Esau, and when there's resolution with Joseph and his brothers, so much more meaningful. Because despite the horrible circumstances and betrayals, God brings those families back together in the end as it was supposed to be. So you're probably asking yourself, okay, where is this going? Jesus calls us brothers and implicitly sisters. Here in this text, us, brothers. He is identifying with us in the strongest word possible. Consider the other places where Jesus speaks of brothers and sisters. Like in Matthew 12, uh, when he redraws the lines and calls his disciples, his mother and brothers. For us, that's kind of peculiar Uh, But for the context he was in, that was scandalous. What was Jesus saying? Or rather, what, what was he foreshadowing? Not only are we saved from our personal sin and death, we are saved to a father and a family that is both local and global. Not only are we saved from sin and death, we're saved to a father and a family. So you may be thinking, maybe you've heard this phrase, blood is thicker than water. And it's interesting that, you know, at some points we'll say, you know, the church family is more of a family to us. And then yet we'll make a choice to prioritize our blood family just as quickly. Uh, But Jesus has shown us a different way to think of family, which is actually the original form of this phrase. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And this is how the people receiving this sermon in Hebrews, they were living this way. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging this. The blood of the new covenant in Jesus is thicker than the water of birth because you've been born again into a new family that's eternal. Your family is with those who do the will of God, those who are under the lordship of Christ. And your brothers and sisters are those who suffer with you for the sake of the gospel. Now that the context is finally set, let's look at these four phrases. Because each of these phrases is so rich in itself and it draws from the fullness of Psalm 22 and the context of the first century. So tell of your name. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he shows us what the Holy Spirit now does by illumining our minds to the beauty of God's revelation in the scripture. He tells us and he tells them how everything points to him. This particular phrase reminds us that Jesus reveals the character of God and the Father to us. The fullness of Yahweh, that covenant name, the fullness of Yahweh was pleased in Jesus to dwell. And as we've just heard from Hebrews 1, Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father. So in John 14, 9, Jesus says that when we have seen him, we've seen the Father. But Jesus only tells of Yahweh, the name of the Father to his family, though. So don't miss the way this verse progresses. My brothers, Jesus proclaims the goodness and character of God to those with whom he is an heir. And that's another mind-blowing phrase. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are his brothers and sisters because of what he has done, because we're under the blood of his covenant. We share the closest possible relationship with the king of kings, the prince of peace. He calls us brother and sister. In the congregation. Now here's an example of Hebrew parallelism. 
It's, an, it's a rhyming of thoughts and ideas rather than rhyming of syllables. And there's a lot of this in Psalm 22, and, and especially right here in this verse. It's connecting to the idea of brothers, but it clarifies and intensifies it using this parallelism. So in the congregation, this is a very intentional word choice, again, as everything has been for the writer of Hebrews. Because throughout the New Testament, we find this word ekklesia in the Greek. So a cursory read of this verse, you'll just pass right over this significant word. It's one of those several things that can be lost in translation, if you will. But the word translated congregation here is ekklesia. And of course you're asking, why does that even matter? It matters because ekklesia means church. It's used in the New Testament for the universal and the local church. And more often, the local church. It's not just any congregation that Jesus is singing in. It's not just any gathering of believers. It's in the assembly of the church. So the writer of Hebrews is going to deal with this idea a whole lot more as we progress. But, but even now, he's foreshadowing that. Pointing out that we actually benefit from our relationship with Jesus when we gather with the local church. There's a direct connection between Jesus leading us in worship and the gathering of the assembly of brothers, the local church. So here, of course, is my favorite phrase uh, in the verse, as you might imagine. Jesus singing. And when I first encountered this, I realized, hey, Jesus probably had a pretty good singing voice. Uh, and then I looked at, you know, in Matthew 26, 30, Jesus, he sings a hymn with his disciples before they head out to the garden. So this wasn't an unheard of thing. I don't know why, it's just not connected in my brain before, but, but Jesus sang and probably sang often. Not just in this one verse. But man, it's so much more awesome when I remember that the verse that we're in right here, it says that Jesus sings with us in our midst. I guess it's awe-inspiring to consider the voice of the Son of God singing praises to God the Father with us. That's something that our children's ministry director, Keisha, has pointed out a few times in staff meeting before, is that anytime that she's sitting near someone who can sing really well, she comments on how enjoyable it was to sit near them and sing praises with them. And now everyone's wondering if they've sat near Keisha and if she's listening. But the point is, you know what that's like, right? Imagine standing next to Jesus as he sings, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You would be in awe. And you wouldn't think twice about singing with him because the beauty of his voice would cover over however you think your voice sounds. I'm not gonna leave that one alone either though uh, because my daughter loves to sing. She is constantly belting out some unintelligible line while throwing her arms out. So thank you, Disney. And Clara is never on pitch. (laughs) So the Judah can sing with me and mommy, and I'm super pumped for that. Uh, But Clara can never seem to match our pitch. So when I ask her to sing with me, though, I don't care how she sounds when she is joyfully singing her heart out to God made me, or my God is powerful. What matters is that she is singing with all her heart. When Jesus stands with us, leading us in our singing, and he asks you to sing with him, he doesn't care if you're off pitch. He is delighted to sing with you to the praise of our Father. Who, and he's delighted to hear whatever condition your praises are in. So this verse points out very clearly that Jesus is our worship leader. And again, thank God that that's true. It's not up to me. In two ways, this is game changing. Because for one, Calvin remarked that there is no better reason to sing with more zeal. Because Jesus himself is singing with you. You should be more exciting than any other thought as you sing with the gathering of your brothers and sisters in the congregation, we have no better reason to sing than when Jesus sings with us. And two, Jesus brings a perfectly acceptable sacrifice to the Father. When we join our voices with his 
It is perfectly pleasing to God. When we follow Jesus' lead in worship, in whatever form worship takes, it's completely satisfying to God because of his son. So everything we do in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus is fully glorifying to God. So thank God that Jesus leads our worship. Worship has a pattern throughout the Bible. And Hebrews 2.12, our verse, models for us proclamation, then praise. The word goes forth and the people respond. The name of God is told and the people sing their praise. Another two-part picture is revelation response, a model we see throughout Scripture as God's interaction with humanity. So so God is a self-revealing God. He chooses both the context, the means, and the content for revelation. Remember the beginning of this letter, this sermon to the Hebrews in Rome? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God chose the context, the means, and the timing to show himself to us in Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews is an encouragement for how to respond to this good news and how to hold fast to it in the face of this world. A third way of thinking about this process is theology doxology, which again, you might guess, I like this one because of that latter word. Our theology pushes us to doxology. And as Paul exemplifies this, even in his letters, he's writing deep theological content, and then he'll erupt in language praising the power and mystery and glory of God. And then he gets back to it in theology. Hebrews 2.12 shows us that Jesus is the worship leader. And even it foreshadows some of Revelation 4 and 5, a powerful scene that proclaims the glory of the lamb who was slain and elicits the praises of the whole earth. The lion of Judah is revealed as the only one who can accomplish God's plan and all of creation response. And Jesus is in the center of it all. He is the one who leads us in our song. He calls us family. And we're family by virtue of rebirth. We're not born into God's family. We are born again. We are reborn by faith in the Son of God. And we're called brothers and sisters, the strongest terms possible in that culture. He is in our midst. (laughs) And we know this from Matthew 18, the context of church discipline, that when the church is gathered in his name, he is there. In the midst of this very congregation, Jesus tells of the character of God the Father as we preach the scriptures. In this very place, Jesus sings with us and leads our singing, our giving, our fellowship, and all other facets of worship. He is here. Jesus sings more lovingly than a parent sings over their children, more joyfully than any pet band playing the fight song, more beautifully than any aria or melody ever performed. We are invited to sing with him. It could be said that at Jesus' return, preachers will be out of a job for the rest of eternity because there's nothing to preach about. We can see him. And the first time I heard that, I was like, yeah, but we'll be worshiping, so I've got eternal security. Job security, see what I did there? Uh, But actually, in reality, I don't have a job right now. Jesus is leading and will lead our worship of God the Father. I'm not the worship leader, I'm just pointing to the real one. We have the privilege of joining his voice when we gather with his people in his presence. So as we go, remember the dialogue of revelation and response. God is always revealing himself in creation, and even more specifically in Jesus through the scripture. So as you spend time with him, then respond to him. Remember that because of Jesus, God has adopted us. We are co-heirs with Jesus. So there's a powerful paradox that he is both king above all kings and our brother. Remember that as you walk in here on Sunday mornings, 
as you gather with the covenant people of God, he is here in our midst. And he has spoken just as he promised. Remember that Jesus sings over you, for you, and with you. He sings of the glory of God, which we have the privilege of joining every time we tune our hearts to sing with him. As Brad mentioned on the the end of the month, we take time to give specifically for benevolence. And so we're going to take that offering in just a moment. And as we do, please consider the ways that God has abundantly blessed you and how you might give back to him for the purpose of blessing people within our church congregation and in our community who have significant emergency needs and things that come up. Give according to how the Lord will lead. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be literally in your presence with your people. We thank you for the truth of the matter that the the timber of our voices does not matter. You see our hearts and you invite us to sing regardless of how we sound. I pray that we would indeed celebrate Jesus when we gather on Sundays by singing and giving and fellowshipping and by submitting to the word as it's taught. And in all those ways indeed worship you. Thank you that you've given so much to us and I pray that you would take uh, this offering and use it to bless your people and use it to bless our community. Thank you for the deacons who so prayerfully and discerningly administrate this. And I do pray that they would be blessed with uh, the power of the Spirit to continually be wise. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. After a little while... He will stop your suffering. And the God of grace, who has called you into his kingdom in his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and confirm you. To him be the dominion forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.